We're in 1 John 3, and we're going to be concentrating on verses 14 through 21, but as I said earlier, we're going to go back to chapter 2 at verse 9, and I'll be jumping around a little bit. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Maybe stop some of this chaos, please, if you would, Les. Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you that your word is constant, that your word never fails, that your word gives life, your word gives hope. And Lord, as Bob explains your word to us this morning, we pray that our hearts and minds would be open and awake to receive it. We pray for those who couldn't make it this morning. We think of Nikki and uh, pray that you would continue to restore her. And we think of um, Daniel and others who are ill or have been ill. Pray that you would restore them. And Lord, that through the word, you would restore our soul at this moment. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Les. Thank you. At the time that John wrote these words, the church was under attack. This is late in the first century. And from the outside, they were under attack from the Romans and the Jews, their own family members, in fact. And from the inside, there were false apostles coming along who were attempting to twist the gospel and turn the message into into something that was away from what is we consider to be the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins and that by receiving him, we receive forgiveness and eternal life. They tried to turn it away from that into another religion. Now, most people recognize that much of this letter of 1 John was written against the antinomian Gnostics, Uh, but nonetheless, it applies to false teachers everywhere. And one of the things that struck me as interesting was, as you go through this book, verse by verse, and we take some time studying it, we realize that John is more focused on you as a believer knowing that you're saved, that you have the real thing, and knowing what it is that differentiates you from others, so that in clearly comprehending where you are, you can identify those that are false teachers. And that's certainly one of the goals of this book, is to identify false teachers. A lot of emphasis here on love, because love is of God. Uh, Now, In chapter 3, we're going to go back to chapter 2 and pick up the theme of loving your brother. And uh, the message, the, the whole message put together here is that true faith, if you're truly a born again Christian, it will be evidenced by a God sourced flow of sacrificial love through you to others you will know that it's not of you, it's not from you, it's not in you, it's from God flowing through you. That's the whole message in a nutshell. Now, the word we use here for brother, as we've been over when we were in chapter 2, can speak of a physical blood relative, a brother or a sister in Christ. It it isn't necessarily... uh, uh, It's not necessarily boy or girl specific. It can refer to also a brother in Christ, a brother or sister who is also a believer. And as I shared with you, oh, maybe a month ago, it could simply refer to another member of the human race. Now, in this particular study today, I'm going to limit this to a brother or a sister in Christ. I don't know if I'm right in doing that, but I kind of feel like since John is differentiating us 
from the lost world, it's safe to say that when he says, he that is in the light and hateth his brothers in darkness even until now, is a reference to hating brothers and sisters within the church. That view is just an opinion. All right. I know some would view that interpretation as dodging my responsibilities to love the world, and perhaps it is, you know. Uh, this book, this little book, John is clearly delineating the differences between saved and lost. And when you, when you get done reading this book, you should know whether you have the real thing. He wants you to know if you have truly been born again. But he also wants us to be able to recognize those who are not saved. The deceitful workers, if you will. The satanic plants who are intended to bring strife and confusion within the church. False apostles who would confuse and divide us in order to weaken and destroy the church. They're there. They're there here in the world, and Satan puts them here to cause disruption. Now, back in chapter 2, John wrote these words. Is it showing up there? Good. Yeah. Uh, he that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother is in darkness. Even until now, he that loveth his brother abides in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now I want you to notice as you read the book of 1 John, the contrast between light and dark, light and darkness. Two roots, as Jesus talked about in John chapter 15. Two sources of power. Walking in the light versus walking in darkness. Walking in love versus walking in hate. John will expand on these in chapter 3, and that's why I'm going back to pick this up. The secret, you know, we know, the secret of success in this Christian life is to abide. Jesus said in John chapter 15, Abide in me, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. Neither can you except you abide in me. And then he closed that passage with saying, For apart from me, I think the King James says without me, apart from me you can do nothing. John reaffirms those words in verse 24 of chapter 2. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. The point is, we are to follow Jesus. We're not to go off doing something we think best. We're not to follow some set of man-made rules. We're not to get all caught up in doing better than we did before. We're simply to wake up in the morning, and, well, say good morning to the Lord Jesus, and then ask the Lord, what He wants us to do today. We are to follow Him. You know, I remember at one point he said to Peter, what is that to you? Follow thou me. You know, he'd ask a question about John. And, uh, and he said, well, what is that to you? Follow thou me. You know, when you look at your brother or your sister in Christ, and you think, well, boy, they can sing very well, or, or they can play a guitar very well, or they can do this, or they can do that. Jesus' response, if you brought it to him, is say, what is that to you? Follow me. That's our responsibility to walk with Him. Do I have it up yet? No. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep, and remember last week I went on that uh, present indicative tense in the Greek, if we go on keeping or if we keep on keeping, it's a present continuous verb. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep on or if we go on keeping His commandments. Now, it's not talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about following His leadership in our lives 
on a day-to-day basis. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. That sentence is a hard one to read. But it's not a hard one to follow. Your life, as you progress in the Christian faith, should more and more become like the Lord Jesus Christ. You should see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life making you into the image of God's dear Son, Jesus. More and more, you should reflect His life. It's not something that I make a list of all the things that Jesus did and go out and try to replicate them. It's a spiritual gift that we become more like Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ dwells in us. We pick up this exact same theme. That was a month ago. Now we get up in chapter 3 and verse 10. We pick up this exact same theme, which is the reason I went back. In this, the children of God are manifest. Now manifest means to be brought out in the open. In this are the children of of God brought out in the open, or exposed, if you will, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither is he that loveth not his brother. Two two characteristics so far out of uh, what's going to be somewhere around 14 in this book. Uh, And, you know, in the early days of my walk, I used to listen to preachers and singers And I would close my eyes and try to imagine whether I could see Jesus doing that. And if I couldn't see Jesus in it, I just assumed they weren't walking in the Holy Spirit. And I I don't know. I don't know who told me to do that. I I don't even know if that's right. But it worked for me. Can I see Jesus doing this? I used to sit in uh, classes and I'd ask myself as a teacher was kind of going off the deep end, uh, could I see Jesus doing this? Nope, nope, can't see Jesus. I just disregard what they're saying. The point is we should be seeing Christ in our lives. Others should see Christ in us. And the love of Christ should clearly be seen flowing through us to our brothers. Well, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. So our first example today is Cain and Abel. And the history is found... Oops, I got off the mark there. The history is found in Genesis chapter 4. Where did I put that note? I have a note. Maybe I'll, I'll skip up here. Don't turn there. But in Genesis 3.21, the first death occurred when an animal died to give up his skin. Blood was shed to cover Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21. I'll bring this up later. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, is the last mention of believers overcoming the world by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have this message that I'm sharing today covered from Genesis chapter 3 all the way up to Revelation chapter 12. It's a consistent theme throughout the book. All right. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel also, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain... 
And to his offering he had not respect. Now, there's no indication that we know of how that occurred. You know, there was a time when fire came down and devoured the offerings, and I don't know what other methods they knew, but somehow Abel understood that his offering was rejected. But unto Cain and his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, angry. And his countenance fell. He looked angry. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why are you angry? Why are you wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If you do well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. So your anger has become an opportunity for sin to destroy your life. All right, Sin lies at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. I have no idea what that means. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Now Cain and Abel had the same parents. We have to assume they were both loved the same amount together. We have to assume also that they're adults by this point. Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. I, I don't think that was the issue. Both are honorable pr professions. Uh, God never said farming was bad and shepherding was good. In fact, by the time Jesus came along, shepherds were looked down upon almost more than homeless or indigenous people that had no jobs. It was just, uh, just shepherds were the worst thing in society. Both these men came to worship. Now, people will argue that one came in simple faith, the other out of duty. Scripture doesn't really say that. You can maybe imply it. I don't know. But they came into the presence of God. I think that is the issue. Abel, in accordance with God's instructions, the chapter before, brought blood. You see, this is before Jesus died for our sins and it's before His blood was sacrificed for us. It's before we were cleansed in His blood because now we think this is a little odd. Why would you be rejected when you come into the presence of God with an offering? Well, the answer is you can't come into the presence with God without blood. Without the shedding of blood, I'll get to that in a minute, there's no remission of sin. Cain came without blood. These were sinners that had to have some type of a sin payment, and the sin payment was designated from the chapter before this to be in blood. Now maybe Cain, and I, I've speculated that perhaps Cain resented the idea that he would have to train, trade some of his vegetables for one of Abel's sheep. I, I seriously doubt if Abel would have resented it and said, no, you can't have a sheep. I just think the issue is Cain is thinking my offering is good enough. I don't care what God said. My offering is good enough. My works are good enough. I don't think he understood. I don't think he wanted to understand. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was rejected. I don't know if Cain ever really understood why that was. It doesn't appear that he asked Abel. It does not appear that he ever asked God. He just got angry. We do that all the time, don't we? We don't seek to know why. We just want to get mad at God. His anger led to envy, and envy led to murder. Now, there's a phrase in our passage today in verse 13 that says, Don't be surprised. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. The fact is, Cain did not understand Abel, and he didn't understand the process by which we must, we must all come into the presence of God. He didn't get it, you know. In such the same way, the world cannot understand you. And really, this is, in essence, the whole message. 
you live in a different world than them and they cannot understand. And unless they're willing to open their hearts and listen, they will not understand. Not as Cain, uh, John writes in verse 12, who was of that wicked one. You remember I talked about two sources, two roots, two lights, two paths, two walk. You're either of Christ or you're of Satan. Two roots. You're in one or the other. And the two of them together don't understand each other. It's a different root, a different source. It's like a Mac computer versus a PC. There's actually a different operating system running in them. There's a different operating system running in you than is running in the lost world. It's faith, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and in His power to make me what I need to be versus works. I have to suck it up and do the best I can and the best I can better be good enough. Two operating systems. Abel's acceptance made Cain feel guilty, perhaps. Certainly made him angry. God showed them how to make a sacrifice, and he covered them. You get all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, where it said, and honestly, it doesn't give us as much detail as we'd like. We'd really like, uh, you know, here, I'd like a paragraph or two. But it says, unto Adam also he and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, now, if you believe conservative theologians up until this point, death had not been a reality in the created world. So in essence, this animal, we don't know what it was, but we're pretty sure he died because I hope he killed him before he skinned him. I can't imagine not doing so. Uh, and we know blood was shed. So we know that blood was shed. And we know that the skin was used for a covering. See? In Jesus Christ, His blood was shed and His righteousness was used for a covering for us. So that, that skin represented the righteousness of Christ 3,000 years. I'm making that number up because I don't really know. 3,000 years in advance. It represents the death, the shed blood, and the covering that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and clothe them. From that time forward, in the history of God's people, from the creation, chapter 3, Genesis, God's people have approached God by means of blood. Whether they were Jew or Gentile, they would offer a blood offering to come into the presence of God to make an atonement, albeit temporary atonement, for their own sins. Because it's recognizing that sin results in death. Sin always results in death. Now, if you were a Jew and you wanted to praise God or you wanted to thank God or you just wanted to do something special for God, a Jew might offer some kind of a gift. Now, it might be an armful of wheat. It might be a sack full of money. Even at times, they would pour out water in a society where water is precious. That's an extravagant gift. Sometimes they would make these offerings you see. That's what we do today. Uh, we used to pass a plate, but ever since COVID, there's a box in the back. That's what that box is for. It's to make our offering. That's not to allow us into the presence of God. It's the blood of Christ and the righteous covering, the righteous robes of Christ that allow us to enter into God's presence. We understand that. The Jews understood that. If they were going to approach God, they had to approach Him by means of the blood. That's why they were killing all those animals back before Jesus came, you see. 
But what we do today is a thank offering. It's a praise offering. It's an opportunity to worship God through our gift. It's showing God the respect and the worship He deserves because He saved us and made it possible that we could come into His presence. But if a Jew, if a Jew wanted to find forgiveness for sin, he'd go looking for a lamb. And if he couldn't afford a lamb, he'd get a dove. He'd find something and he'd offer it through a priest because blood was required. Now we find this written in Hebrews 9.22. It's a reference really to Old Testament law. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now this is where I'm going to repeat this. From Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 12, the consistent plan of salvation has always been that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And if you want to come into the presence of God, you better come by means of the blood. Now, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would have had to offer some type of a blood sacrifice. After Jesus came, He fulfilled all those forward-looking prophecies, and now we all come by means of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's because sin always results in death. You remember what God said to Adam in the garden? In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. From the first sin until the last, sin, death has always resulted. Just like if I were to cut my arm and drain the blood out, the blood represents the death. And the more drains out, the deader I become. The first sin in the garden resulted in death, and the last sin that is ever committed will result in death. Now, unless that sin is put under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and covered, that death will be required of us. He came into the world to save sinners. Paul would use the phrase when he wrote that, of whom I am chief. Paul recognized the fact that Christ's death on the cross was his only means of salvation. This is a spiritual reality. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, Ezekiel sums up the Old Testament law by saying, and I didn't copy this, did I? No. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Every one of us is under a death sentence. Sin always results in death. When we sin, we are literally draining out of our own life source. We are killing ourselves. But when we turn in faith to the one who took our sins, we turn our faith towards the cross where Jesus died for us, where He died in our place, where He took on my rebellion and all the evil that I'd done in my life, when He took all of that to the cross, suffering death and bled and died in my place. When we do that, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that covers our sin and allows us to come into His presence. Cain didn't get it. He was like my Uncle Paul that I'm always talking about when I tried to share the gospel with Uncle Paul and I really hope he changed his mind after he got off the phone. I tried to tell Uncle Paul how badly he needed Christ. He'd been a Catholic his whole life, never got it. Cain was raised in a religious family. He never got it. Uncle Uncle Paul said, oh, I don't need Jesus. I've lived a good life. Good enough. And I tried to say, Uncle Paul, the Bible says there's none good. No, not one. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans chapter 3. 
You say, I've lived a good life. You don't understand what good is. You know, when Jesus tried to tell the Jews what the culmination of the law is, he said, be ye therefore perfect. You want to keep the law, Jews? Be ye therefore perfect. Matthew chapter 5. Be ye therefore perfect. What? As a Pharisee? No. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You want to work your way to God, Jesus said? Just be as perfect as your Father in heaven and you can do it. Otherwise, you better look for a Savior. That's the point. Cain didn't get it. My Uncle Paul, I hope he got it before the end. Cain thought that both he and his sacrifices were good enough. My fruits and my vegetables are every bit as good as Abel's stupid sheep, he thought, and didn't recognize the necessity of blood or refused to recognize it. There are those in the church today that look at guys like me and think we're, we're just old-fashioned, silly people that are just bloodthirsty butchers, they call us. Always talking about the blood. Cain didn't get it. The world doesn't get it. And the world won't get you once you get it. Cain refused to follow God in obedience and to offer a blood sacrifice. And I believe, now you'll get all types of theological arguments on this if you read commentators, but I believe that was the fundamental reason that his, his offering was rejected. And why did he kill his brother, John said? Because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. If you're walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit who dwells in your heart, leading in your life, you began that walk by coming to the cross. If you have the Holy Spirit, you had to have come to the cross, you see, and accepted Jesus and His blood poured out for you. In His death, you found forgiveness. And in Him, you found new life. This should make perfect sense to you. It shouldn't be like I'm up here teaching some crazy theological lesson. You should be thinking in your heart, yes, I understand that. That's why, why are you taking so much time to explain it? I got it. I got it. You know, you should. You should be thinking this is the stupidest preacher I've ever heard. We got it. We got it. That's where you should be. I got it. I got it. As you live out this new life that you've discovered in Christ, your life will begin to mimic the Lord Jesus Christ, and as it does, it will convict the world of their own sinfulness. Just being near you makes the lost feel uncomfortable. Why did he kill his brother? Because his own works were evil. He looked at his brother's life, he looked at his own life, and it made him feel bad. That's what John said. The lost world and the saved world live in two different worlds. You see that when you try to talk to someone who's lost. It's very difficult. That's because the worldly mind is foreign to us. Uh, Paul explained it this way. He said the natural man, talking about an unsaved person, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned, and they don't have the Spirit. That's the point. Without the Spirit to interpret it, it won't help. So as we wrap up this chapter and move on to Antichrist next week, Lord willing, we ask the question, how do we know that we have the real thing? Well, by the time you're halfway this far through the sermon, you really know whether you got it or not, don't you? How do we know? Well, this part of 1 John says, this is just one aspect. That the presence of sacrificial love, God's love in you flowing through to others, 
and I, I, I wish I had a better way to explain it, is evidence of our connection with God. Now, how do I know if I have sacrificial love? Verse 14 says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Well, how do I know if the love that I have for my brother or my sister in Christ is the right kind of love? The answer is fairly simple. We want what's best for them more than we want what's best for us. That's how we know. See, you know, we, we say it all kinds of way. Agape, they use agape as, as uh, an other love. It's caring about them more than we care about ourselves. It isn't that we don't care about ourselves. It isn't that we don't love ourselves. It isn't that we don't love the things we're doing, our jobs or the things we own. We do. We love all these things, but we care about others more. You know, more. Now, this, this, I underline the word no, epigonosko in the Greek. We, epigonosko, that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abides in death. Epigonosko is experiential knowledge. And again, this is in a present, I think it's a present participle, if I remember correctly. And it's saying that we continually go on knowing. The, 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 ex, the experiential proof that we're saved is the sense of love that we have in our hearts for those that, that are around us. It's the caring about other people. We go on knowing. It is the evidence that we've been born again. If you don't care about anyone but yourself, you're not saved. You need to go back to the beginning. Get back to the foot of the cross and confess your sins. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you and to come into your life and to fill you with the Spirit. Start over if you don't have that. Genuine, selfless, sacrificial, godly love is one of the evidences that you've been born again. Now, the world loves, don't get me wrong, the world can love, but the world always loves for a reason. I can come in here, well, I can't, but if I could, I could come in here and clean this carpet. And I could do that because I love God and I just want to please Him. Or I love you and I don't want you to catch something. You know? Or I could come in here because I wanted to do something that would put me in good stead with God. Two reasons, two roots, light and darkness. The world always loves for a reason. But the reason the world loves is always selfish. This is why Paul says an unbeliever and a believer should never get married together. They're, they're, they're in two separate worlds with two separate operating systems. Their love is completely different. The world talks about a 50-50 relationship in marriage. God doesn't talk about that. God talks about 100% on either side. A lifelong commitment with nothing held back, regardless of the other half. It's not 50%, you see. The world is always selfish. Although they hide it well sometimes, it will always be for their own benefit. Uh, Hereby perceive we, he said, the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The other person first, you see. There are laws of physical life, and in the laws of physical life, it requires physical preservation. Above all, the law of physical life desi desires to survive. You know, if I have to push you off the life raft, I will in order to survive. That's the law of physical life. 
There is a law of spiritual life as well. And the law of spiritual life requires self-sacrifice. Above all, we we desire that others would live. Now this is back in Matthew, quoting the Lord Jesus Christ. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, if you want to follow me, you will have to deny yourself and take up your cross, which is an implement of death, be willing to die to your old self and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that on Judgment Day, when these multi-billionaires stand before God in judgment, if they're not saved, you will be far wealthier than they. I don't know if you've thought about that, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the most exceptionally precious gift that could ever be bestowed on a human being in the history of the world. You have Christ. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world? If you're the richest man or woman in the world, but you lose your own soul and end up in an eternity separated from God. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? So the point, as I say, is simple. It is the presence of self-sacrificial love that is proof that we are in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as hatred is the proof that we're connected with Satan. Uh, 1 John 3.14 He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Because of time, I'm not flashing back, but we could flash back to Matthew chapter 5 and see Jesus Christ reiterating these same words. Now, six evidences that we are truly saved. All right. The first is we care enough to get involved. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have a need and shut up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, John writes. He's an old man at this time. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The first sign that you're truly connected to God, that you're truly saved, is you care enough to get involved with the needs of your brother. The second sign is we have assurance in our heart. We're not upset. We're not aggravated. Sermons like this don't make us uncomfortable. We have assurance in our heart. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. We have confidence. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. Our prayers are answered. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. You got to put a little uh, parentheses around the fact that it's whatsoever you ask in God's will, you receive. You can't just pray for a new truck. Tried it, didn't work. Uh, you pray for a bigger sailboat, didn't work. Uh, but if you pray for stuff in God's will, He moves. That's the point. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Our faith in Jesus leads us to love others, and this is a command, His commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And finally, it's the indwelling Holy Spirit that is our proof. In Ephesians, Paul said He is the earnest of our expectation. Earnest means a down payment. In the old days, when you bought a house, you put down what they called earnest money. It was a deposit. 
The Holy Spirit is God's deposit in your life. It's the proof that you're saved. It's the Holy Spirit living in your heart. It's, uh, it's Him speaking to you sometimes when you don't even want to hear Him. It's Him encouraging you to do something in a certain direction. It's very subtle and it's very quiet. And sometimes He's hard to hear. You have to develop ears to hear. And I'll tell you, from my own experience, how's my time doing all right? From my own experiences, when I first started, well, I still have trouble with it, to be honest, but it was tougher in the earlier days. In the earlier days, I would try to listen to what the Holy Spirit was telling me to do. And I would, I would think I'd hear something, and I'd go out and do it, and it, it was crazy, uh, some of the stupid things I did. Not, not sin. God would never lead you to sin. But I just did some pretty weird things. And eventually, uh, I hope I've developed some discernment and not just a chicken-hearted nature that started saying no to the Holy Spirit. Because there were, there were some times I thought it was a little odd. But it's the indwelling of Him in your life saying, you know, do this. Don't do that. And it's just, just this very quiet little urging in your heart that says, you know, write a check to that. Or go over and see that guy. Or now's the time to talk to somebody. It's so quiet. You, you almost want to say, you know, am I making this up? You know, and, and sometimes you should just say, say to yourself, is that you, Lord? And wait. And if you're willing to do His will, He'll repeat Himself until you finally understand God is leading you to do something. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know, that's that word again, experiential knowledge, that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So the question, of course, is, does this make sense to you? If it doesn't, you need to talk to Christ. And if that doesn't work, you need to talk to me or somebody else who does understand it. And maybe I confused you, and I hope I haven't. But I pray that every one of you in your heart is nodding, yeah, I get it. You're right, I get it. This is what it's truly all about. Let's pray. Father, I pray that no one would leave this room without knowing that Jesus Christ is their Lord and their Savior, that they will understand it's His blood shed on Calvary's cross that makes it possible for us to enter into Your presence, and that it's His righteousness that covers our sin that we might stand in Your presence. It's through Him and Him alone that we come into Your presence, which is why we always end our prayers in Jesus' name, because we can't do it in Bob's name or George's name or Lisa's name. It has to be in Jesus' name, because that's the only basis through which we can enter your presence. So, Father, I pray that every heart here is in unison with this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.